You're listening to 1881, powered by the American Hereford Association and part of the Hereford Network. Here's your host, Shane Bedwell. Welcome back to another episode of 1881. This is your host, Shane Bedwell, and we're certainly excited to keep bringing you uh, phenomenal coverage from what was an outstanding annual meeting here uh, that we had in Kansas City. The end of October, uh, we had just uh, fantastic participation and uh, membership were engaged during the whole uh, talk uh, and talks that day through the presentations. Uh, you know, and so we wanted to keep bringing you more content, and uh, this is going to wrap up our coverage of the annual meeting um, with Dr. Todd Bilby. So he is on today, and he's going to cover a little bit of what he talked about during her his presentation and um you know we were just visiting that the feedback uh, really on the whole convention was very good and uh, folks have reached out to dr uh, bilby to discuss a little bit more his presentation and uh, hopefully we can kind of fill that gap here today uh, with some of the ideas that they've been working on at merck animal health uh, some of the research projects where data has shown uh, to be very favorable with uh, synchronization and using some of the tools to imagine us talking about tools on this podcast, right? Uh, from genetics to pasture management, to synchronization, health, whatever it may be, uh, the toolbox is full and there's a lot of options that you can use uh, to keep making progress with. And so uh, with that, Dr. Bilby, welcome. Oh, good to be here and, and, I was glad uh, I had the opportunity to do this podcast because, as you mentioned, there was a seemed like a lot of interest post my talk um, when I look at the emails and some of the phone calls I got. So certainly hopefully this will help. Yeah. So Dr. Uh, Todd Bilby is the director of dairy technical sales for uh, Merck Animal Health and um, has been involved in the livestock business. And we're certainly looking forward to Hearing a little bit more of your background, but uh, Merck uh, is a, uh, a great partner of the American Hereford Association, and uh, we have a, a great uh, partnership working with their reps and uh, their company and uh, helping us both grow uh, as, as we move forward with this. And so we, we certainly appreciate what they have done for the American Hereford Association uh, through this partnership and uh, enjoy working with all of you folks on the Merck team. I think you have an A1 great team of folks that uh, I think that's what's what's neat about it. Uh, Todd, just getting to know more of the reps is that most of you own cattle and you run cattle, you know, and that's uh, makes a difference when you're out there talking to producers and giving those those uh, presentations is that uh, you'd be like a lot of us here at the association. You're involved in the industry and uh you're you're making making a living uh raising cattle so why don't you share a little bit about your background and uh in the industry and uh you know how you got started uh, working for Merck yeah absolutely well thanks for being on and speaking of some of us having herefords i'm i'm 
looking out across my place and I have some Herefords running across it as well. So I had a small red Angus herd that I've been breeding with Hereford semen. So I was glad to come talk to the Hereford convention so I could steal some good ideas and meet some more people. Yeah. And uh, as you right. mentioned, there's, there's several on our squad with some Hereford. So it's a great partnership for us as well. So thank you. So a little on my background. Um, I grew up in, in Northwest Missouri on a, a small cattle farm there. And, um, yeah, and that's really where my passion grew around agriculture and, and cattle in general and and worked for a, a local ranch um, by my parents' place. And then, of course, showing cattle and, and so on through FFA and 4-H and um, definitely knew I was going to work in agriculture. And and um, at the time, I thought I was going to be a rodeo star. It was pretty short lived, I can tell you. <laughs> but uh, I went to a junior college and uh, I kind of laugh. I say my, my grades went south, so my horse went back north. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, then I started getting serious about school. Yeah. And uh, I ended up going to Oklahoma State for my bachelor's in, in animal sciences. And, and um, again, all in, in agriculture and, and focused on cows. And I took a great course, a reproductive physiology course taught by, taught by Dr. Geisert at the time. And mm -hmm. um, it really uh, inspired me that, that that's the direction I wanted to go just in, in cattle reproduction and then was offered a, a master's at University of Arkansas to work more in embryology and do IVF uh, and embryo work in both cows and pigs as well. And uh, started getting involved with some synchronization there and, and the use of technology to identify heats and then when to transfer embryos and so uh, this was all in, in beef at the time. And um, I was reading in the literature and all of these problems occurring in the dairy industry as far as reproduction. Reproduction at the time was, I think, on average, they had a 16% pregnancy rate in the dairy industry. So yeah, you couldn't get much lower, right? right. And, and, and for a repro guy wanting to make an impact, I was like, man, it just seems like uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. It was an industry I knew nothing about except that uh, looked like there was a lot of cool research going on. And so mm -hmm. I got, I decided to do my PhD in, in dairy reproduction and went to university of Florida and worked specifically in dairy. It's kind of funny. My first time touching a dairy cow or being on a dairy farm was my first week of my PhD in dairy reproduction. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so it, it was a baptized by fire. I could tell yeah. you. Um, but it was a great opportunity, learned a lot and just learned about a, a different industry that, uh, that I've become passionate about and have a lot of good friends that work in it. And so mm -hmm. from there, I got hired by Monsanto Dairy Business and I went to California and that's where I truly cut my teeth uh, working strictly in dairy and uh, was there for a couple of years. And then um, University of Arizona came calling and I still had a research itch and academia itch that I wanted to scratch. and um, University of Arizona offered me an uh, extension dairy specialist position where I was part-time research and part extension. Mm -hmm. And so had a small teaching appointment as well. So I was at the University of Arizona for a couple of years doing research and really was doing a lot with heat stress and how heat affect cattle and then also worked with synchronization and, and trying to improve fertility in the dairy industry. Um, then Texas A&M AgriLife offered me a position uh, and I was looking to get back closer to the Midwest anyway, and yep. I had family in Texas as well. And so um, they offered me a position to go to Stephenville, Texas, and I went there and 
Um, I don't think you can live in Texas and just do dairy because you've got a lot of beef cows around you also. So that was my slow start back into doing some beef stuff, um, some personal and some for, for external folks and, and did a lot of research again with synchronization, heat stress, and then just extension activities while at Texas A&M AgriLife. And so it was through that that I was doing some research with Merck Animal Health mm-hmm. on synchronization and improving fertility. And, and they offered me a position to come be a technical services person for them and, and focusing more on our reproduction platform. And they said, hey, c- come work for us and keep doing the research and good things you're doing so um yeah so i came to work for merck been with merck 10 years now and since once once i got in there and they figured out i knew a little something about beef cows it didn't take too long before i was doing both beef reproduction and dairy reproduction so that was good it it got me back in the will with my parents they wondered how the heck i got off track (laughs) with the dairy right (laughs) yeah there's there's not near the dairy uh, industry in missouri uh, that uh, the other uh, previous states that you've mentioned so uh yeah no it's uh it's it's good it's all good so that uh, you know you um have a a wonderful industry kind of background and experience and kind of have have seen everything so i think you great bring a pretty practical experience you know to tell your your technical role um with that as long along with a great research mind too so you know an annual meeting uh, you would have covered uh, several different topics and so let's let's uh let's just kind of kind of get into it i mean uh you know what um kind of your main kind of points and we'll kind of break those down don yeah i think the the main point was that you know as i travel around given talks it, it, quickly I when I was breaking back into the beef world if you will um, I was so used to talking pretty heavy time day eye synchronization from my dairy experience and then started in that in the beef world and and you know quickly realized that there's just still a lot of opportunity to improve calving intervals as far as shortening calving intervals calving season through a more simplistic approach using bulls and that's probably where most of my questions were coming from anyway and so I would I would ask hey do you guys want to hear about how we can improve fertility with bulls or how do you want to do time to AI most of the time is hey talk to us about the bull we hear we hear a lot about time to AI we know it's important but logistically there's a challenge or maybe labor wise there's a challenge or or, or whatever the case may be um, running them through the chute three or four times just isn't, isn't feasible. So that's, mm-hmm. so that's where we started focusing. And, and um, I think the, the biggest, easiest approach was just given a, a, an injection of prostaglandin, such as, you know, Estromate is the product that Merck sells, but prostaglandin been around for years, first proved in the seventies. And, um, you know, just a great way to force cows to show a heat when you want them to. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, something you could easily do is put the bulls in for four or five days, run the cows through the chute and heifers or how, however, and um, give them a shot of prostaglandin to force them to show a heat. And then the bull hopefully will do his job. And then you can get a, a bigger majority of them bred early in your breeding season, which in turn, you'll get a majority of them on the ground sooner um, at the start of your calving season. And so several studies have, have done that. 
and shown, you know, a lot of positive benefits, both on the calf and on the cow. So, I mean, uh, it, it makes great sense. Uh, so we're, we're going to, so it's really not a, the only management difference uh, is, is running those cows through one time, right? After it. And, and so you're saying, okay, whatever day we're going to, April 1st, we're going to kick the bulls out. And, um, you know, four days later, we're going to bring all the cows back in and give them a shot. And then uh, really nothing else changes about our, our management or, you know, that's, that's really it. So what, so what's the data show? I mean, what kind of bump were you getting as far as, uh, more of those cows bred up in that first cycle or being able to shorten the interval to kind of talk about some of the data and the results from that? Sure. So first off, I want to be clear that it doesn't necessarily, I mean, over time it will improve fertility but it doesn't necessarily improve fertility. It just improves the fact these cows get bred quicker. And what I mean by that is a lot of times I'll ask and percentages can be good and percentages can haunt you. If I ask a person, how's your breed up? And they say, great. We we have 120 day breeding season and 90% (laughs) of them were pregnant at the end of it. Well, and and that's great. But when did that 90% get pregnant? Yeah. Right. And, and that's yeah. what we're really talking about. It's it's not that I'm going to take your 90 percent to 95 percent when you look at it in that in that regards. Mm-hmm. What I want to do is skew that bell shaped curve so that more of those animals are getting pregnant in that first cycle, that first 21 days of the season. And with that, there's been a lot of benefits because it's really as simple as the quicker you get a cow or a calf on the ground, the longer it's alive to eat, the more pounds of beef it puts on. And so a higher weaning weight at the end, it's, mm-hmm. it's really, and that's the big thing, right? Instead of kicking your bulls out and letting them show a heat, potentially 21 days later, you're forcing them to show as many of them a heat. Those that are cycling, that'll force them to show a heat and your bull will cover them and hopefully more of them get pregnant. So you're just shifting more to get pregnant in that first 21 days. They've got benefits on the, on the, on the steer, they've, they've followed those bull calves, the steers all the way through to the feed yards. And, you know, carcass value was $75 higher for those that were born in the first 21 days versus the third 21 days. Mm-hmm. So most of the studies done out of the University of Nebraska by Dr. Funston, you know, he's the one that did a nice job of really looking at, um, you know, what are all the benefits on the calf and on the steer side, you know, is increased weaning weight, increased carcass value, um, on the heifer side, it was increased weaning weight, increased pre-breeding weights, also an increased number in the percent that were cycling and an increased pregnancy rate on those heifers. Yep. And it, and after those heifers calved, more of them bred back quicker because they got bred sooner. So they had longer time to recover for that next breeding season because the calf got on the ground. So they had a little longer time. So they bred up sooner. Mm-hmm. And when they looked at the cows and there's some data back in the 50s showing the cow that calves early in the breeding season stays in the herd longer versus the cows that don't so so from a longevity standpoint both on your heifers or on your cow herd um, you're going to see improvements the cow herd itself from a longevity perspective and then on the steers and heifers um, there was a multitude of benefits those weaning weights depending on what study you pick up the lowest number i found was an increase of 20 pounds most of them were in that 
40, 50 pounds. I mean, there was a pretty good um, bump in weaning weights just because we got them on the ground quicker. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if a producer's kind of starting this for the first time, I mean, what, as a rule of thumb, I mean, a guy that's been in this business, you know, when do you say turn those bulls in? Because I know that's, you know, that can vary a little bit. Uh, you know, you have a, you know, you start calving, you know, um, let's say you have a 60 day breeding season. How much time or rest do you want the majority or the average of that, those cows to have before you turn in the bulls and kind of get with that shot, you know, and start doing that program? Yeah, good question, because this this shot program, this one shot of estromate or prostaglandin, whatever prostaglandin you choose to use, it only works on cows that are cycling. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so depending on how far away they are from calving, most of the time a cow um, needs at least 45 days is what you shoot for. post calving before she's cycling and ready to get pregnant again Mm -hmm. and those 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 ones that just had their first calf they're usually more like 70 or 80 days right so they need a little longer to recover um and and that's really important body condition score and how far they are post calving really makes a difference on how well this system will work Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so just something i'm thinking about um you know, you've got uh, a set of bulls turned in there. You're wanting to get them all bred, and uh, how do you how do you keep these bulls from not getting hurt when you've got a bunch more cows coming in all at once? You know, uh, assuming you know it's they're in decent sized pastures, most of them. But did did they have to increase the number of bulls turned in with this protocol doing that, or what? What's some of the feedback there? That's usually the first question I get. So <laughs> is what do I got to do with bull power? Yeah. And your bull power doesn't change. Your, your bull power would be the same. Um, uh, you would still, I mean, I always recommend whether you do the system or not, uh, breeding soundness exams, you know, if you have mature bulls, make sure versus young bulls, that, the whole thing you're already doing. None of that will change. I would bull power doesn't change on this program at all because it, it one, these bulls can handle quite a bit, but two, you know, if I'm cooking the, kicking the bull in, theoretically cows, if I, if I have a hundred cows out there, four to 5% are showing a heat per day, theoretically, right? Um, so that first four or five days, that bull's going to breed 20, 25% of your cows. Mm-hmm. You, you run those cows through, you give all of them an injection. And when you kick them out, the ones that didn't get bred will hopefully show a heat and get bred at that time. There's going to be a percent of those that aren't cycling in any herd. There's no herd that's going to be perfect, but, but, and that those heats are going to show over the next two to five days. So it's really spread out over a 10 day window. um, First off, and they didn't change the bull power in those studies and it's got great, great results. So, yep. Good. So what other things have you tried uh, with this protocol? I mean, does it make sense to do any more synchronization after that point, or it's this is kind of that protocol and it's a, the best uh, you can kind of make it? Yeah, I think this is a great, you know, 
and, and you've got another option. Some guys will say, hey, let's not, I don't want to resort bull. I don't want to kick bulls out and then try to run cows through and resort bulls out and whatever. Um, there is a plan B if you wanted to do this program, give everything a shot when you kick the bulls out. If that's easier for you, that's not the best, um, but it will increase the number that are still getting um, bred earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be a plan B. I would still try to kick the bulls in and then four or five days after putting bulls in, run them through and give them this shot. After that, yeah, the bulls should be doing their job, right? Yep. And and you should get them tightened up. So there wouldn't be, if there's a next step, it's if you like the fact that you had more of them calving in a tidying window, you see the benefits of the weaning weight and everything that we're talking about on here. Then next step might be, hey, let's look at my heifers and maybe I'll want to consider doing time day eye in the heifers to increase, you know, to introduce new genetics. And hopefully I retain heifers from my heifers, which should be a better base of genetics. Um, and then you could also stage them to be time day eyed uh, a month or 45 days before you did this bull program with the cows, if it works, just so they'll have a calf a little earlier and have that time to recover, like we talked about. So they're kind of synced up, so to speak, with your cow herd when you go to do it the next year, run them through a prostaglandin. So, so if there's a next step after, after trying this program, it might be consider, you know, doing time to eye in your heifers if you're not already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I know we're, um, you know, we're getting to a point where, you know, some folks have more management. Uh, a lot of them have less management. Uh, it seems like uh, workforce labor, it's tough, just tough to find good help. And, you know, facilities are what they are. They're easily good enough or, you know, um, you know, so sure, it, it's a it's a tough commitment. But I, I think the data shows, um, you know, using some t- timed AI and sync programs like exactly what you're talking about if you want to introduce new genetics and move the needle just a little bit further um getting a better calf earlier on in the breeding season makes a huge difference and uh so there's a lot of opportunity and it just kind of comes down to having the time and the resources and the facility to kind of make it happen so the sync programs uh, that are out there, Todd. I mean, what's your um, what's your experience? I mean, the seven seven and seven uh, protocol that uh, University of Missouri is kind of out there with the additional shot. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And um, one thing I'll say before I'll answer that is, I always encourage work with your veterinarian work with if you have an extension partner that's or whoever your repro reproduction specialist in that area whether that's through the university whether that's through a a bull stud whether whatever you know bring in um, the folks that know your operation better I I hate to always you know a one-size-fits-all approach it really depends on what your goals are and, and what you have so just want to put that plug in there. Um, beef, beefrepro.org, great organization that has all these sync sheets on there. There's several different synchronization protocols. There's shorter ones. There's longer ones. There's some that are using MGA, some with Cedars. You know, there's so, again, that's where having a, a team or some experts that you can reach out to to help you design a plan um, is going to be important. 
As far as the seven and seven, you'll find that on that beefrepro.org. You'll, you'll see that on the sync sheets, the seven and seven program. Great program. They've done some nice studies showing it really does a good job of, of um, producing a heat at the time of AI. And they've even used sex semen and conventional semen and saw improvements over um, using the seven-day cedar sink, which is probably the most popular program that I run across out there. And, it, and it's still a solid, good program. Um, you know, the drawback with seven and seven is you have an extra shoot run. And so that always creates a challenge. Um, but when they compared the seven-day cedar sink versus the seven and seven, they saw uh, improvements in the number of heats and the improvements in conception rates. And, you know, when I talk to the embryo folks, they're like, hey, just improving the number of heats, I'd like to try this on my recips because that gives me more recips to put embryos in. Yeah. So there, there's another avenue as well. And, and they've done this with, in this program with embryos. There's um, data, Dr. Dr. Jordan Thomas out of University of Florida or University of Missouri, I'm sorry, done a nice job, you know, showing that it works in an embryo program, works with sex semen, conventional semen, and more data is coming out there as well. And so I think it's a good program, just keeping in mind, there's an extra shoot run, which is an extra cost and headache. And and so it's whether you, that's the route you want to go. Yeah. I mean, specializing though, like what you're saying with those embryos, I, it's been a little while since I looked at the paper, but it was a six, 7% bump. Um, yeah, that sounds right. That I mean, right, yeah. you start talking about a, you know, a higher valued embryo calf uh that's a bowl that you're going to put in your production sale the next year i mean that that investment and that time i mean you just kind of got to weigh out those options but it it was pretty favorable data so i didn't i'd encourage you to to go to that website beefrepro.com and uh, check out uh, some of that literature and information um about that so speaking of embryos uh, something that I think kind of got everybody's attention at our uh, annual meeting was a, a product that you guys have that you've been uh, giving uh, Coriolan, and so you you made a you made a little bit of talk about uh, Coriolan and maybe using that uh, in uh, you know in a, another synchronization protocol. So you want to share a little bit about that, Todd? Sure. Yeah. So Coriolan's a product, probably several listening on this say, what in the world is that? It's actually been around for 30 years. <laughs> it's a um, great product that um, it's used. So for those that are familiar with like GNRH, gonadotropin releasing hormone, um, you know, that's used to induce ovulation. This product, Coriolan, it also induces ovulation, but it, it cuts out a step. It is luteinizing hormone um, like activity. So for example, when you give a shot of GNRH, so for instance, ours is Fertigil. If you give a shot of Fertigil, it's going to go um, to the hypothalamus or uh, sorry, to the pituitaries to release luteinizing hormone, which causes ovulation. However, Coriolan is luteinizing hormone. So you skip that step. And we know cows with high progesterone really uh, tempers the ovulation rate when using GNRH. So by using Coriolan, you get a higher ovulation rate. Roughly, um, when they did this on day seven, seven days after heat in dairy cows, they saw, you know, about a 90% ovulation rate with Coriolan versus about a 70, 75% 
with GNRH. So there's a, a bigger improvement and it skips one of those steps and that's why there is a bigger improvement in ovulation. And so with that, they've done this in embryo transfer programs, both in dairy cattle and in beef cattle and saw improvements by giving a shot of Coriolan um, at the time of embryo transfer. Some studies have shown both a benefit in conception rate and a reduction in pregnancy loss. Some studies just show a reduction in pregnancy loss because we know some of those IVF, especially IVF frozen embryos, um, you know, they, they have more embryo loss than using conventional semen, for example. And so mm -hmm. um, this is a nice tool that uh, helps reduce those uh, embryo losses and potentially improve conception rate as well. So that's a, they're given that just for the listeners here again, uh, that shot of Coriolan is given when you put in the embryo that day. So day seven of the embryo, but the first day it's going in the cow, right? Yeah. So when you transfer that embryo yep. into the recip, that's when you would give yep. the, the, the Coriolan yep. dose. Now I will say there's the dairy literature uses, um, 2cc, 2.5cc as a dose. Um, the beef has been more 1 and 1.5cc. Seems like a little bit of lower dose. But if you look at Coriolan, it's labeled. And I always encourage you to work with your vet for any of these scripted products. And uh, especially if it's anything off-label use, which this is. Um, there's a, it's, Coriolan's labeled for cystic ovarian disease, and it does a great job if you have cystic cows and give an injection of this, um, but it's labeled to use the whole bottle, 10 cc's. And yeah. so when you go to giving Coriolan for recips, most of the research in beef has shown either one or 1 1.5 cc's was, was the recommended dose to use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, again, a uh, place where, you know, a lot of our breeders, um, I think in the annual report, uh, we would have showed some data and I mean, between, uh, AI and embryo work, uh, 30 to th almost 32% of the registrations that come in through the American Hereford Association now are the result of one of those two, um, advanced kind of repro technology. So, you know, I mean, it's uh, something more and more of our producers are using, and it's uh, uh, sometimes it's feast, and sometimes it's famine. You know, I mean, we just it's there's a lot of a uh, lot of un unknowns out there, and a lot of things that have to go right for you to have success at it. But you know, here's here's an opportunity to mitigate some of the risk. It sounds like, and it um, it's working. So that's uh, that's encouraging. So Todd, what else, uh, what else should we cover relative to repro ART, um, you know, work or things that, uh, folks can make sure that they're doing before they spend the extra time with, with cost or any of that to apply one of these sync programs or make advancements. Sure. I think so. I mean, some of the biggest things where I, I see things go wrong, um, with or without synchronization from a reproduction standpoint. And we've hit on it a little bit, but, you know, depending on how stretched out your breeding season is, if, if you even have a defined breeding season, you know, it, this is really dependent on whatever sync program, anything you do, 
how far your cows post calving are away from having that calf. They have to have some recovery time. And so if you have a lot of cows you're running through trying to breed or, or give, give a shot of estimate to force a heat and they just calved three or four weeks ago, I mean, it's the likelihood that they're going to show a heat or even be cycling is low. Mm-hmm. And so that's one thing. This pro, these programs, this particular simple program I'm talking about, the benefits occur over time. First year, so many of them, it's going to shift them a little bit. The next year, a little bit more. And next year, and you can slowly start tightening that that breeding season and, 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 and in turn your calving season. Um, and obviously correct culling would be another strategy to make sure, you know, keeping a bunch of tail enders in there, ones that don't breed um, probably hurt that bell shaped curve as well. Nutrition, body condition score, uh, um, especially living here in Texas, right? We go through a drought every three years, I think. So um, nutrition becomes tough and, um, that's such a key to getting these cows cycling, getting them to hold an embryo, getting them to show a heat. So having proper body condition, proper nutrition in place is going to help with that. And then just making a plan, right? Sitting down again with your vet, with your whoever, and and figure out what you're going to do before you're in the middle of doing it and be able to take good notes. So you know what's working and, and how to continue to improve. Very good. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us um, here on the podcast and uh, certainly enjoyed your feedback and uh, the research and efforts that you're doing for the industry and um, keep up the good work. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for the partnership with Hartford. It's um, mutually beneficial. Well, with that, uh, we'll finish this episode up uh, here today. Uh, I'd encourage you also to uh, look at your fresh December Hereford World. That's hopefully hit your mailbox by now. If it hasn't, it'll soon be on its way. Uh, the full coverage of the annual meeting is in this issue of the December Hereford World, and uh, you can view that online uh, as well as uh, you know sign up for a membership if you're not getting uh, that mailed to you. So uh, contact us if you'd like to become a member and receive the Hereford World, we'd be happy to send you uh, what we consider is the a great source of Hereford happenings and uh, the sales and everything that's coming up uh, as far as Hereford business is concerned. With that, uh, I think we've got a few more episodes here before Christmas, but uh, I hope as you're making your f- uh, plans with family and friends that uh, uh, you're doing that, and uh, everything's coming together, and uh, got a little moisture uh, over some of the areas, so that's uh, that's good. I know there's more that needs to come, but uh, we are getting a little bit of moisture now. So uh, with that, we'll be signing off. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hereford Association's podcast, 1881, with host Shane Bedwell. For more information, visit Hereford.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.